Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. It's always funny when I take Zach's mic stand, I have to push it way down. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Resurrection City Church. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, whether you've been here for a while or if this is your first time with us, uh, we're just so glad that you're here. And if you are joining us uh, just for the first time, we have been in a series where we are talking about kind of the basics of discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And at Resurrection City, we like to use four words to talk about that. So you can see them up on the screen here, and I'm going to actually advance to the next slide where we've got some more detailed descriptions. Uh, We know, so we uh, choose to follow uh, and continue to follow God. And then we grow to bear Christ-like fruit. We go to serve and invite others to be a part of God's love. And we do all of it together. And so today, we are going to talk about what it looks like to do all of these things together. Um, And we actually, we're trying something new out today, so you can try it with us if you'd like. Uh, But our slides uh, are going to be up on this QR code. So eventually, we'll get them up on the website, but we're just testing it out today. Uh, So if you'd like to follow along with the slides on your phone, if that helps you kind of engage or if you then later want to go back and look at something, um, all you have to do is scan the QR code with your camera app and it should take you there. And then, like I said, depending on how this all goes, uh, we'll try and get it up on the website for future weeks as well. So I'm going to leave that up. I'm going to pray for us uh, and then we will jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and this chance to just come together and to worship you. Um, we pray that as we think about what it looks like to do this together, that you would just bring us closer together this morning. Um, All of us who are in this room, uh, people who might be gone this week for various reasons, people who are watching online, Lord, would you help build this church into a community and into a family? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so many of you know that Joel and I recently adopted our daughter, um, and she's about three months now. She's been placed with us since she was born, but our adoption wasn't actually legally finalized until a couple of weeks ago. So we had to go to court. Uh, It was on Zoom, so (laughs) it's a little bit strange to do court on Zoom. This was our judge, and then you can see us in the background uh, on (laughs) his computer. So our lawyer who was there took this picture. And so we had to be sworn in and, you know, judge did the whole thing with the gavel and all the normal things you would associate with court. It was just online. And after hearing from our lawyer and from the caseworker and from us, uh, the judge officially declared us a family. So it was a really exciting moment for us in uh, in our house. And I've had a few people since then ask me, you know, she's been with you since she was born. Did it kind of just feel like a formality? Like, does anything really feel any different now? Uh, And on one hand, no, nothing really feels different. There's not anything that would have made me love her more or be, you know, feel like she's more part of our family than she already is. Uh, But on the other hand, there are some specific, like, legal things that you need in this world that we did not have access to. So we hadn't had access to her birth certificate or her social security card. And having the adoption legally finalized does actually make a difference in our everyday lives of how we... Uh, do things like add her to our health insurance and practical things that you kind of need to get through life in this world. And I bring all of this up because uh, when we talk about what it looks like to live life together as a church, the writers of scripture often use the language of adoption into God's family. 
And I think that idea of living life together as a family is going to be really helpful for us as we consider how we can know, grow, and go all together. And I think it's one of those ideas that's like, oh yeah, church is a family, I love that, right? Like, we're a spiritual family, it's all good. But I want to talk about what does it really mean to have that be like a legal, finalized thing, right? The judge of the universe has declared that we are adopted into God's family and that we are, are together one family. So I want to talk today a little bit about um, kind of the, the scripture side of things. So we're going to look at the passages that talk about church as family. What does that mean to be adopted into God's family? But then I also really want to talk about some of the practical implications. So what does it actually mean to live life as if we are officially, legally a family of God? So that's kind of our roadmap today. We're going to look at some passages, and then we're going to head into kind of more some practicalities and some things to consider as we think about what does it mean to know, grow, and go together. So let's start by looking at uh, this idea of adoption into God's family. So I want to look at the letter of Ephesians. And so if you want to follow along, if you brought a Bible with you, or if you want to follow along on your phone, or the verses will be um, on that QR code and up on the screen. So you can follow along with me. So we're going to start in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And then I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to verse 13 and 14, where it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so this is taken from the letter to the Ephesians, which is a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. And many people think that this letter was not just meant specifically for the church in Ephesus, but was meant to be circulated around to the other churches in the area. So this was a letter that all Christians at that time were meant to hear. And he starts the letter talking about all these things that are true of Christians when they follow Jesus, right? We have every spiritual blessing. We're chosen to be holy. And we've been predestined for adoption to sonship. Now, the Greek word for adoption to sonship is an actual legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. So this wasn't just something that was used in the church world, but this is like a legal term in the Roman uh, culture. So Paul's not just giving some kind of nice spiritual sentiment that, oh, we're all family here. Uh, He's talking about true legal binding adoption. And in Roman law, the big benefit that came from uh, being adopted as a child uh, was that they enjoyed the same rights or inheritances as biological children. Now, before you get caught up on the word sonship uh, in these passages, it's just helpful to remember, in this time period, only sons could inherit anything from a family, right? And that's the big biological right that sons had. So they received the family inheritance. It was a patriarchal society. They were just living in it, right? There's not a whole lot we can do about that. Uh, But I think it is worth noticing that even though that's how even the 
the term, the legal term was set up, in this letter, it's saying that anybody who chooses to believe in Jesus is guaranteed this inheritance, right? Verse 13 and 14, again, says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So this meant, if this letter was meant to be circulated to all believers and the time, it means that anybody could be adopted to legal sonship with all the benefits that it included when it came to God's family. Anyone who believes, right, women, slaves, anybody else in society that maybe people looked down upon or thought, why would you ever want to adopt them into your family, right? Anyone who hears this message of the gospel and believes is given the right to be included in the family of God and receive God's inheritance. And now he's not talking about money or land here as the inheritance, which would have been kind of the normal situation. He's talking about God's mercy and eternal life spent with him. Now, it can be easy, I think, most of the time when we approach this uh, book of Ephesians, and especially these opening uh, chapters, can be easy to read the passage individually, right? What rights do I gain as being adopted into the family of God? What does this mean for me? And that's good, right? It's really good to think about those things. Eternal life matters, and it's an amazing thing that God would consider adopting us into his family when we have done nothing to show that we would deserve it. It's an incredibly beautiful theological truth. And there's another truth that I think we can often overlook when we consider our adoption into God's family. Because being adopted into a family is not something you can do in isolation. Being adopted into a family inherently includes other people as part of that family. If you go on in the letter of Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And household's kind of how they would have described family back then. So, Households, you know, you can't just say like, oh yeah, this is just this truth for me and it's just something I enjoy and like really it changes how I think about myself. That's true. And you're adopted into a family, right? With siblings and cousins and crazy aunts and uncles, uh, everybody that you might think of, anybody who believes in Jesus is now a part of this family. It's not just a spiritual thing, like, oh yes, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. It's actually a real thing that has practical implications. And you can see that expectation throughout other letters that Paul writes in the New Testament. Here's just a few examples. In Romans 12:10, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In Galatians 6:10, he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, and live in peace. So God's ado- God adopts us as his children, and it's this beautiful thing that happens with us in God, but he also invites us to be a part of a larger family and calls us to live together in community. So this is kind of this idea, right? How do we live together? How do we know, grow, and go together as a family of God? 
So I want to talk about three things today that I think kind of help, can help us think about that in a more practical way and change how we engage with one another as we seek to follow Jesus. So I want to talk about expanding your idea of family, choosing sacrifice over self-expression, and seeing discipleship as a family effort. All right, so we're going to start with expanding your idea of family. So one of the things that is, can be a really good thing and can also sometimes be a barrier to how we understand what it means to live together as a family of God is that when we think about family, we often tend to think of our own families that we grew up in as our point of reference, right? I think it's natural. It's kind of our biggest example, our biggest experience with it. And sometimes that can be really helpful if you grew up in a family that kind of showed love and um, treated you in the way that those verses uh, I just showed referenced. But if you grew up in a family that hurt you or didn't treat you well or love you, then I think that that can really make it difficult to think about what does it mean to think of church as a family? Because we're going to bring in our expectations and our experiences that we might have had growing up or even as adults. So if you grew up in a family that was challenging or where you felt like love wasn't shown and it wasn't a safe place, first of all, I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not how God intended family to be. Uh, And second of all, I just want to say, if this trips you up while we're talking about this, it's okay to just kind of go back to those verses I listed before where it talked about how family's meant to love one another, to show honor to one another, to do good to one another, strive for restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And if that's all you take from today, that's totally okay. That's really important work to think through uh, what our own personal experience is and then therefore how that impacts how we think about the family of God. So if you need to just hang out there and camp out in those verses, be my guest. Uh, I'd love for you to do that. But if you're kind of ready to keep moving through this, uh, I think another thing that can sometimes be a barrier to our understanding of the family of God, kind of when we think about church uh, and the larger community, is that we tend to think about much smaller families than would have been common in the ancient Near East when this letter was written. Because church is a family, but it's not going to be a nuclear family from the 1950s. We have to remember that this letter was written a long time ago, and in order to really understand what the author meant, we need to understand what family looked like back then. So if you'll allow me to do a little bit of history here, Uh, In the ancient Near East, family life was talked about much more with the term household because it included more than just like the two parents and children and their dog living in like a private house like in the suburbs, right? It was a very different concept. It often included parents, children, people who worked in the household or slaves, again, unfortunate but true for the time. Sometimes aunts, uncles, grandparents would also live there. And then not only that, but if a son got married, he often brought his wife into his family of origins household. So they didn't go off and get their own apartment and kind of start doing their own thing. They came and joined the man's family and worked together there. So we've already got a lot of people living together. And beyond that, uh, even the households themselves didn't have a ton of privacy. Because in the ancient Near East, most of life took place outdoors. So you were spending a lot of time with other people in the community just doing your normal chores and life and work. 
It's just kind of all done together in the community. So you've already got bigger households than what maybe you might be used to. And then you've also got a culture that's set up in a way where everyone kind of is interacting together. So much so that in the ancient Near East, when people thought about like the smallest unit of society, we would think of an individual. But they would think of a household. So they didn't even think in terms of like, yep, everybody's got their own individual you know, thing going on. They thought about like, this household might be doing this, or this household might be doing that. So you can understand why maybe this culture was a much more what you call collective culture, right? They thought about the group first, rather than the culture that we tend to live in now, which is more individualistic, thinking about individuals first. What do I need? What do I want? How do I go about doing that? And now, some of you actually might have grown up in households that were more similar to that. Maybe you had grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, or just always had an open room in your house and had other people staying with you for various reasons. And if that's the case, I actually think you are better equipped to understand what it looks like to be the family of God altogether. You actually kind of have a leg up, I think, in understanding this. But if you grew up with a smaller uh, family unit, maybe one to two parents and one to two children that kind of all lived in their private home where they had kind of space and privacy from everyone else around them, you may need to expand your idea of family in order to understand the church as family. And I know it's been good for me to expand that idea. I recently read an article, uh, the title of the article is a little uh, intense, it was called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. I promise the article isn't like attacking families or anything like that, uh, but it's by a guy named David Brooks, it was in The Atlantic, uh, and he really pointed out some of the challenges of living lives in our own separate family unit bubbles. He talks about how small private family units actually really only benefit the people in society who are already doing well for themselves. Because when something happens, like maybe a challenge hits or a disaster or a tragedy of some sort that you're not expecting, which really can happen to any one of us, there's fewer people around to form a support system and to help absorb the shock of those things when they happen. And maybe you feel that. Right? Maybe you feel the loneliness of living as a single person on their own, or maybe you feel the burden of trying to do daily life as a, as a single person, as a married couple, as a nuclear family, whatever it is. I know as I've talked with people, I've, I hear things like that a lot. I hear people saying things like, man, it just feels like when something out of the ordinary hits, right? you get sick or have an extra expense or something you know, comes up, it's really hard to find the margin in our lives to deal with those things. And I think some of that happens because we don't have that support system to sort of absorb the shock of the challenges that come at all the time in life. I know I have felt that way sometimes. And I think that that stress or burden is just kind of a result of how our society is set up. Right? We're all living in our own little separate private bubbles, and we might come together once a week for church or in smaller units for community group during the week, but most of the time we're living kind of on our own. But if the idea of a nuclear family was a mistake, like this uh, article was arguing, I think that the church is the solution. Ephesians says that everyone who hears the gospel and believes it is adopted into the family of God. And while we can't live with every single person who follows Jesus around the world, 
we can live life together with the people in our local church community. God has created us, the people in this church, to live as one extended family household. So if you're feeling the stress or loneliness of living as an individual or a smaller family unit, by being adopted by the family of God, your support system just got a whole lot bigger. If you go through something big, you've got more people to help come alongside you and absorb the shockwaves of it. If you have something to celebrate, you've got a lot of people to come together and party with you. If you've got something that you're trying to figure out in your walk with Jesus, you've got a whole family walking that same road with you. So if we want to live life together as a family, I think we need to expand our idea of what family looks like. And now I can't, I wish I could give like one practical solution to this, right? Like, you know, we all just need to change this thing about the way that we live. But the truth is, is that we do live in a society that kind of separates us out into smaller units. And so thinking about what it looks like to expand our idea of family is going to look different for everybody. So I encourage you, as we kind of think about this idea of family, I want you to think through how can you expand your idea of family Maybe that's through your home. Maybe it's through your table, just inviting people for meals and getting together to celebrate things or to eat together. Maybe it's through your time, right? Creating more margin in your week so that your, your time isn't so separated into your only family needs, but you're able to think about the needs of other people or being involved in other people's lives in a bigger way. So I want you to consider, what does it look like to expand your idea of family? How can you expand that in your own life? And I've been really encouraged, to be honest. I've seen many of you do this in different ways. I've seen you invite people to live with you in a season when it's necessary. I've seen you invite people into your homes for meals or go into other people's homes and bring them meals. I've seen our church do this in a lot of ways. And so I'm really encouraged by that. And I want to encourage us to keep moving in that direction and think, how can we continue to expand our idea of family together? All right, the second thing is that we need to choose sacrifice over self-expression. So one of the big shifts that we have to make in order to see church as a community, as a family, uh, and to really live life together is to choose sacrifice over self-expression. Because one similarity between your family that maybe you grew up in and the family of God is that you don't get to choose who is a part of that family. Right? Maybe as a kid, you really wanted to have a brother or a sister or something like that, and you might ask your parents for that, but ultimately, you didn't really have a whole lot of control over that. As a funny story, I recently, we had someone fill out a connection card. One of our littlest, uh, our younger members of Red City filled it out, and in the prayer request, it asked for... Um, help for them to have another baby in their family. And I, I asked the, uh, this child's mom, I was like, did you know that that's a prayer request they had? She was like, I definitely did not. <laughs> um, and ultimately, you know, that she doesn't have a whole lot of control over that, uh, even though that's her prayer request, which was very cute. But we don't always get to control that, right? We don't get to choose who is a part of our family. And that's true in church as well. You don't get to decide who sits next to you in the pews. There, and there are going to be people, even people right now in this room, who vote differently than you, who have different interests than you, who have different life goals than you. And you don't get to choose that. And yet, we love our families. 
even though we don't choose them. In that same letter of Ephesians, shortly after Paul talks about being adopted into family, he talks about how in Christ, our differences are set aside and we are brought together as one. It's like he knew, right? If I'm going to tell people, you're adopted into the family of God, we're all going to be one big family, that he was going to have to address the fact that we have differences and that these things are going to sometimes cause problems. So he says, um, he, he's addressing two specific groups in this letter, and these two specific groups have very deep differences. And this is what he says. Uh, he says, For God himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law which, with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which, in, oh, lost my, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So he reminds us that no matter what our differences are, we have more in common in Jesus than we do different. And we can come together over that. We can set aside our other differences because this one thing we have together is so big and so monumental that it brings us together despite any differences we might have. And honestly, I think this is really good for us because in a lot of other areas of our lives, we can choose to only listen to, to only watch, to only engage with the things that we agree with. Right? The algorithms that run everything, the search engines and social media and streaming platforms, pretty much everything online, they send us things that they think we will already like. And they are scarily good at it. And that can be fun sometimes, right? Like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to hate on TikTok or anything like that. I think there's a place for those things. It can be really fun to engage in things that you're interested in. But I do think that sometimes it can give us a complex that everything in our lives should be tailored to us, right? Everything that comes into my life should be something I'm already interested in or that I already want to talk about or that I already agree with. So when it comes to church, and we already have all these people who have different experiences, different backgrounds, different interests, different ideas about how the world should work, it can cause some problems sometimes. And even beyond like arguments or disagreements over things, I think it can even make us not want to engage with certain people in our church family, right? Talk to someone about their really specific interests, even though I would never want to do that thing. Why would I waste my time? Listen to someone talk about parenting when I don't have kids, or listen to someone talk about their college classes when I am so far beyond that stage of life. Or listen to someone explain the details of their job, which I will truly never understand because it's a field that's so different from what I do. Why bother is kind of the attitude that we can sometimes have. But when it comes to family, we're stuck with these people, whether we like it or not. And if we want to love them, we need to make sacrifices to care about other people, even if they aren't just like us. We need to let go of our need to express our own self-interests or ideas uh, about how things should go. We don't need to always talk about our own circumstances or have people always understand or agree or relate to what we're going through. We need to sacrifice 
so that we can enter into the lives of other people and understand their experience, even if you don't end up agreeing with it, right? Get to know their thoughts on an idea. Get to know their interests. Move towards them in love. And this can be tough. And I think it's good to have people in your life who are maybe in your current stage of life or have the similar interests to you. Because I know that every life stage can sort of feel like this is the most intense stage of life, right? Like when you're in college, it feels like everything is new, right? New classes, new place, new friends, new ideas. Maybe when you're starting your career, it feels like I've got to put everything I have into this job. Or when you get married or if you have kids, it can feel like those relationships are everything and so on, right? You can do this for every single stage of life. And we can all feel that way. But if we all feel that way, then how are we ever going to interact or engage with people who are in a different situation than us, who have different backgrounds or different experiences? We all have to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone and to engage with people despite our differences if we want to truly live together as a family of God. And I promise you, you will learn something from other people, right? Again, I said you don't have to agree with everything everybody says or thinks or does, but if you choose to engage with people despite your differences, you will learn something from them. And if nothing else, you'll learn more about what it means to love others the way that God has loved us. Because that's what scripture says is real love. Not space to be your truest self and choose self-expression over everything else, but sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And later it says there's no greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friend. That's a pretty big sacrifice. And I'm not even talking about that level, right? Like I'm just talking about reaching across differences, being willing to engage with one another and try to get to know people who maybe are different than you. I think that's an, a sacrifice that we can make. Loving your family, it has to mean choosing sacrifice over self-expression. So my kind of practical thing is, what does it look like for you in your life right now to choose to love people who are different than you? How can you step into the lives of others, get to know them and their experiences, their struggles? How can you engage across differences? All right, the last thing I want to talk about today is seeing discipleship as a family effort. So this whole series, like I've been saying, we've done about discipleship. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus, to know, grow, and go together? And you might think, uh, okay, know, grow, and go, those are all verbs. They all fit. Uh, you really should have probably picked a verb for the last uh, word to make it all kind of be coherent. But we actually kept it this way intentionally because it's together here is an adverb, right? It's describing how we do everything else that we're doing. It's meant to be the thing that kind of connects all of the pieces together. And we do these things together. And maybe that's physically we do some of these things together. We're physically here worshiping God together. We uh, serve together. We study scripture together in community groups. And we encourage and challenge one another in the things that we might be doing on our own. We're called to be disciples together, and we're called to help disciple one another along the way. And I think in recent years, um, this, the, the word discipleship or the idea has really been framed as some kind of like one-on-one -on -one mentorship, right? You get this like someone disciples 
a few people, and then they disciple a few more people, and sort of so on and so forth. Uh, it goes on. And there are a lot of things I really like about this, right? We are called to invest in people, and we are limited. We can't invest in everybody, so it's good to be mindful of that. It can also be helpful to have like someone you can go to if something comes up and you want to process through something. And the other thing I love about this is that it's, um, it continues to grow, right? It multiplies. It continues on and on. And at the same time, I struggle with this model, right? Because discipleship is not a pyramid scheme, and growth isn't always linear. So while I like the fact that this method of discipleship encourages us, us to invest in one another, I think it also puts a lot of pressure on one singular person to be in charge of your discipleship one singular person to help you follow Jesus. Because what if this person lets you down? What if you can't find that singular person to invest in you? And I honestly don't know that there's ever a time when we should really be relying significantly on one singular person unless that person is Jesus himself. And you might say, but this is Jesus's model. This is what he does with his disciples, right? We see this. Yeah, kind of. Uh, Jesus knew his limitations. He didn't try to invest in everybody. And I don't think that the disciples only learned from Jesus himself. I think they also learned from each other. If you read through the New Testament, you see that the disciples most of the time have no idea what's going on. And they're talking to each other, trying to figure it out as they're learning from Jesus. Even after Jesus ascends, they're still like, wait, so what's the plan? What are we doing? So there's a lot of things that continue uh, to happen that help them grow and learn and become a fuller disciple of Jesus. And so I think for us, as we think about what does it look like to care about each other's discipleship as a family, I think it's helpful for me visually to think of discipleship more like a wheel where you're being invested in by many people, right? Your pastors, your leaders, the leadership team, your community group, if you're in a group, your family or your roommates or the people you live life around in every day-to-day -day life, your peers, people who are in the same life stage as you, people that you serve and lead. When you are serving or when you're leading other people, you actually learn a lot from them too. It's not just a one-sided relationship. And then also if you have outside resources, like a counselor that you see or I mean, let's be honest, we live in 2024. I understand that some of our discipleship is probably digital, coming from other sources, other authors or podcasts or things like that out there. And I like this idea a little bit more because I think it helps us think more about what it looks like to live life as a family, that we're all called to be in each other's lives and to help one another grow. This model does not give anybody an out, right? You all have to be involved in everyone's discipleship that you're coming in contact with. You have to care about knowing and growing and going together as a family. And the, the hope is that this would also be something that repeats itself and multiplies. I'm not a graphic designer, so this is the best I could do. <laughs> but think of it as other wheels shooting out from each uh, circle. Hopefully you can visualize that uh, and what I was trying to make it look like on the, on the slide. And I, I just personally, when I think about my own growth, I see this play out, right? There are people in my life who... Uh, are peers of mine who I learn from. They're, you know, I learn from my family. I learn from my community group. I gain value from all of you in leading and serving. 
there are always going to be these different kind of people who might have wisdom or have input that you might not. And it's helpful to be open to that instead of thinking, I only have one person that I can learn and grow from, and if that one person's not around or if that one person doesn't have thoughts or helpful um, wisdom in an area, then, well, I'm, I'm just kind of out of luck. I think that this idea that we're all called to be involved in each other's growth is, fits more with that idea of church as a family. Because we need everybody. If we really want to live life together as an extended family household, then we have to all be invested in each other. And again, right, you're limited, I understand that. I'm not saying you need to get to know every single person at Resurrection City. But who are those people in your sphere, in your life, that can be a part of your discipleship? Maybe you grew up in a family that had household chores, or everybody in the family had some kind of role or some kind of um, responsibility to help the family just do daily life and be kind of move forward. I think that's how we ought to think about our spiritual family as well. What's my responsibility to help out in the family of God? Where can I step into that? So I encourage you to think about that. How can you get involved in the growth of the other people in your life in our church family? All right, I am going to wrap up here, and we're going to head into a time of worship and communion. Um, And I just want to encourage you again, reflect on these questions. Reflect on the idea of church as family. What does it mean? You know, we talk about community a lot here. We talk about, we have community groups that meet throughout the week. Um, And I know it's something that you all care about. I can hear it in the way you talk. I can see it in the way you prioritize your time and live your life. And so I'm encouraged by what we see. This is not a um, thing to say like, you know, we need to really rethink this. But I do want to say, how can you think about it more as a family and less as just like, things I need to do on my to-do list, or, you know, just like, oh, I just have fun when I hang out with this group of people, so I'm just going to try to hang out with them all the time. Think about what does it mean to be church's family, to be officially, legally finalized, adopted into a family together in our local body at Resurrection City. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then I'm going to have the worship team come up, and we will worship through song, we'll respond. We're also going to take communion, You don't have to be a member at Resurrection City to take communion. We just ask that you are a follower of Jesus, that you have been brought into the family of God. Um, And if you're not sure about that right now, I encourage you just to pray about it. Think about it and ask God, um, yeah, what does it look like for me to consider joining this family and um, experience his love in that as you pray and reflect. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you would consider us and that you would choose to adopt us into your family, that we can experience the benefits and the inheritance that comes along with that, that we can know that we have your love and your mercy and that we have been given eternal life with you. And also, Lord, that you've given us rights and benefits of being a part of the family here and now, that we get to live life together, that we can be there for one another in all of the highs and lows of life and that we can walk this road of discipleship together, encouraging and challenging one another along the way. Would you bring us together even closer as a family, Lord? If there are people who feel like they're not uh, a part of this family for whatever reason, Lord, would you invite them in further? Would you provide people who will reach out to them 
uh, to encourage them and to give that sense of belonging that we know is already true because of what you've done for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.